SpaceX's Starship is one step closer to its orbital flight. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX's Super Heavy Booster, which will launch its Starship spacecraft, passed a critical test of firing of its more than two dozen engines. Starship is part of SpaceX's plan to make humans interplanetary. It's also a critical piece of NASA's Artemis program, bringing humans to the lunar surface for the first time in half a century. We'll look at the importance of this test and what's ahead for SpaceX's Starship. Then, mission patches are a long-standing tradition of spaceflight. We'll talk with one space historian who explains how patches are sewn into the fabric of the history of spaceflight. From Starship to Stitches, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. A critical test of SpaceX's Super Heavy Booster is pushing its Starship spacecraft one step closer to an orbital flight and eventually to the moon. Last week, the company fired 31 of the rocket's 33 engines while the vehicle was bolted down to the ground, a first for SpaceX and a crucial test of the rocket and its launch pad. It lays the groundwork for an orbital test soon and eventually taking the first of NASA's Artemis astronauts to the lunar surface. Here to talk about the test and what's ahead for Starship is Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, welcome back to the show. My absolute pleasure, Brendan. So last week at um, in Boca Chica, there was a, a pretty significant Starship test, right? 31 engines of the 33 were ignited for static fire. Just give us the significance of this moment, Chris. The main part of this is to understand that this is the system that is integral to NASA's human landing system for the Artemis program to return humans to the moon. And it's integral to SpaceX's own internal drive to make life interplanetary, where that means the moon with the ultimate goal of Mars or going straight to Mars. This is the vehicle that SpaceX has designed that's going to do all of those things. So the big test here is that until last Thursday, they had only fired a subset of the engines, about 14 of them at a single time. And obviously, one of the things they need to do with this rocket is to prove that 33 engines can ignite at roughly the same time, build up to the right amount of thrust and permit the liftoff of the vehicle. The rocket that has flown with the most number of engines is technically the Soviet N1 rocket, which had 30. So, but it never had a successful flight. So Starship is in this category of Falcon Heavy with massive amounts of engines that all need to work properly. So firing these engines all together was a big deal for SpaceX, proving that the system could handle it, the pad infrastructure could handle it, and that they are actually ready to step through a full countdown, light the engines, and lift off. So in that regard, it was a very important test. Now, a big part of that test was, as you said, Brendan, only 31 of the 33 actually fired, which begs the question, what went wrong? Do they have to do it again? Bottom line is, we don't really know exactly what went wrong. SpaceX wasn't um, completely forthcoming with that, aside from just saying, hey, we did see something in the data. We purposefully shut one of those engines down so that it would not ignite with the other 32. And then when they actually commanded the ignition, one engine did not ramp up to its full thrust. So it was shut down by the automated system. Overall, though, that is still a really good test for SpaceX. The sort of requirement for static fires isn't that you actually have to fire them all um, as long as you can grab the data that you're seeing. And, and 
case in point, this isn't a cop out. NASA had the exact same strategy in place with the SLS rocket when it was when the big core stage was going through its test firing campaigns in Mississippi, they were very clear of saying, hey, we'd like to do a full eight and a half minutes, but if we get four minutes, we've got all the data that we need. So this was the equivalent of what SLS had been saying of, oh, we got the data that we need, even though we didn't get the total number of engines that we wanted firing. We've seen prototypes of Starship fly before, but not with, not orbital, there's they were suborbital and not with this amount of engines, right? I mean, up to this point, how many engines has SpaceX successfully fired on on a Starship prototype? Yeah. So in terms of the Raptor engines that have flown, the most number of engines that have fired have been three for a flight up until this point. And so this is a, a very large yes. <laughs> jump in scale, right? It, re- it really is too. And, um, and, and a nerdy little point here too, is that the engines they technically used on those other flights are the first generation of the Raptor engines, which, whereas the ones that will actually fly this particular mission are more the generation two Raptors, which are more powerful, they're more reliable, and sort of represents the iteration that SpaceX is really going for here to make the engine simpler as they learn. This may be a silly question, Chris, so forgive me. Um, why 33 engines? Why not just one big engine or or, or maybe half a dozen bigger engines? Why, why go for 33 of these Raptor engines? Yeah, so the Raptor engines themselves are incredibly powerful. They are not yet the most powerful, but they're on par. They're almost equal to the RS-25 engines that are used on the core stage of the SLS and that were the holdovers from the space shuttle program. They actually do only about 2,000 pounds force of thrust less than one of those RS-25s. So the problem that you end up having is that it's not necessarily the size of your engine, but how much thrust, how much power it can actually put out. And these liquid fuel engines reaching up just over half a million pounds of thrust each, that's about what they are capable of doing in in, in their biggest form, in their most powerful form right now with the technology we have. So from there, what you have to do is you, it's just a, a, a math equation at that point. You then look at the total size of the vehicle, the total mass of the vehicle, the payload you want it to be, the payload mass you want it to be able to launch. And from there, you work backwards to say, okay, if the vehicle is going to have this much weight at liftoff or mass at liftoff, then the booster needs to be producing this amount of thrust. And then you figure that how many engines you need from how much thrust each individual engine can produce. Mm -hmm. So that just goes to show you the, the amount of stuff that, you know, Starship and the system are planning to put into space, right? I mean, if these are equivalents of, you know, RS-25s, and there's four of those on <laughs> yeah. RSLs, I mean, that's quite a bit yeah. of the power it's got. It, it, it really is. And, and you know, for a bit of... Um... For a bit of comparison sake, you know, like we're we're used to the Falcon 9s and the Falcon Heavies and the Atlases launching these big satellites, and a big satellite for us is about six metric tons. Um, in 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 mass, Starship's overall goal is to be able to deliver 100 metric tons to any place in the solar system with some orbital refueling that they still have to prove out once the system is flying. But I mean, it is orders of magnitude greater than anything that we have launched before. And for you know to think about something a little bit bigger, I know people are probably going, oh, but we've launched big modules up to the International Space Station, which is correct. They're about 15 metric tons. Um, with those modules. So we're still talking about a sign. It's basically the you could launch the International Space Station in one go from a mass perspective with Starship. And Starship is actually 
has the same internal volume as the International Space Station. So Starship itself could be a space station in some iteration as well. It's the size is incredible, but that's actually, Brendan, to me, the bigger part of the story here, right? Like the engine tests are great. They're the incremental steps to get us to that flight. But what does it ultimately mean overall? It means that for everyone listening, the goal of humans on Mars in our lifetimes is not necessarily a question of, oh, yeah, that would be nice, but a question of, okay, when in our lifetimes is it going to happen? And that's a huge change for the space community at large. But beyond the human element of it, too, the throw power of the starship, and by throw power, we mean the amount of payload it can send to different places in the solar system, it is so staggeringly large and cheap comparatively to what we are currently doing that that is where the true benefit of the system lies, is the incredible reduction in cost that it promises to bring coupled with what we can actually achieve with it because it's a fully reusable system that can take this massive amount of payload and humans anywhere in the solar system. That's that's the breakthrough here. That's the That's the thing that's going to radically change how we as a species approach our solar system and explore it and interact with it. Mm -hmm. And I've got to say, throw power is one of the coolest units of measurement, (laughs) I think. Uh, (laughs) Well, Chris, you mentioned, you know, there there are some really ambitious, you know, things for, for, for Starship to take, you know, humans to Mars and these permanent settlements, but really the, the kind of the, the most pressing mission for Starship is, is Artemis. Um, Tell me a bit about what is ahead um, when it comes to testing, and is this kind of meeting the scheduling that NASA has to get this to land humans on the surface of the moon in the next few years? I I think I'll take the second part of that question first. Uh, I think overall, we're kind of where we would want to be schedule-wise that would at least permit the current timelines to still be possible. Um, now that said, there are a lot of moving components here, so I'm not going to take a stab at which one will ultimately be the deciding factor for um, for when Artemis three is able to launch and the components for Artemis three, the landing mission, are able to launch. But overall, um, after first orbital flight, um, let's assume the first orbital flight is a success and go from there um, first. So assume the first orbital flight of Starship is a success. You need to repeatedly demonstrate that success of getting the vehicle to orbit. You're going to need to verify a few other things after that first flight, like ability to perform a controlled deorbit burn and and everything, because that the first mission isn't quite doing that. Then for the Artemis program, you have a whole series of things that have to happen relatively quickly in terms of spaceflight timelines. You have to actually start testing the architecture for the lunar variant of the Starship, which is different from the ones with the flaps and the heat shield that you're seeing in Texas right now. Uh, This one will be white. It won't have fins. Um, They're going to have to test out the overall uh, using propellant pressure as the reaction control system. So they're not going to have thrusters per the current plan. So they're basically going to use opening up propellant valves and allowing pressure escape to move the vehicle around like you would normally see a thruster do for Dragon right now. They've got to test all that out. The One of the biggest things is they've got to get orbital refueling demonstrated and down because that is still key to the lunar variant of Starship. It needs to refuel in Earth orbit after launch to be able to have the fuel it needs to take itself to the moon, 
do the landing and then get back up to the surf and then get back up to Orion. You have to do an uncrewed demonstration of that first, followed by the actual landing. So very similar to the commercial program in commercial crew program and how they did uncrewed test flights of Dragon before moving on to crew. And then all of that has to then sequence with the Artemis SLS rocket that's coming up that will actually fly the crew for that mission out to Starship because Starship will not actually launch the crew on that mission. They'll launch on Orion and then dock with Starship in lunar orbit or lunar vicinity, I should say. So there, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that are happening in parallel with one another. But but finally, Chris Gebhardt, the the probably the most important test coming up for SpaceX is going to be the orbital test flight, correct? When when that can we correct. expect that to happen? Do we know? Yeah. So um, Elon has said that it could come as early as March if the static fire was successful. The static fire was successful per what they needed to actually complete the process and show all the stakeholders, including the FAA, which needs to grant the launch license as well for this, that um, that, that they are ready to actually proceed to that. The, so one of the biggest things is proving that they can get the launch license or proving to the FAA that they deserve the launch license for this, which I don't actually think is going to be as big of a hurdle as some are making it out to be, largely because this vehicle is integral to NASA's plans. The military is looking at this vehicle for its applications for them as well. So uh, the odds of them getting the launch license are quite high. But then they actually have to perform the test. And this is where it gets interesting from a historical standpoint. There are only three rockets in history that have not had significant heritage hardware from a previous program that have actually made it to orbit on their first flight. They are the Proton rocket from Russia, the Pegasus rocket from Northrop Grumman, and my favorite, personally, the Space Shuttle did it on its very first time. Now, yes, people are going to say, but SLS did it, but SLS is a shuttle-derived vehicle. Falcon 9 did it, but Falcon 9 is derived from the Falcon 1. So Falcon Heavy did it, but Falcon Heavy is derived from the Falcon 9. So yes, there are other examples, but brand new rockets using brand new technology and brand new engines like Starship, can it be the fourth to do it, uh, is going to be a very interesting question. Chris Gebhardt is the Assistant Managing Editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Brendan. Still to come, the history of the mission patch, Are We There Yet?, is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. From robotic missions to human space flights, there's one critical thing every mission must have. A patch. It's been a long-standing tradition in space flight that started decades ago. Each patch is unique to its mission and is adored by both mission participants and public collectors. Here to talk about the history of the mission patch is Robert Perlman. He's a space historian and founder and editor of CollectSpace.com. He begins our conversation talking about the origins of the mission patch. It originated uh, from the military. Um, it actually started because uh, if you're back in the Mercury days, the astronauts were allowed to use uh, were allowed to name their individual capsules. And so um, that's how they per put their personal touch on their missions. But when uh, NASA was introdu introducing their next program, Gemini, a two-person capsule, they decided they weren't going to name them. And so uh, the, fir the first, uh, one of the first astronauts to fly on Gemini, uh, Gordon Cooper, who flew on Gemini 5, was a Mercury 
was a Mercury astronaut, and he he came to NASA and proposed to them and said, "Well, let us at least personalize something about our mission. Let's design a patch." Um, and so they uh, they they came up with a design um, that wasn't much to NASA's liking because it said it was a, it had a, a Conestoga wagon on it. The the point of the Gemini Five mission was to set a new duration record. And it said eight days or bust. And NASA was worried that if they didn't make it to eight days, then the media would report it as a bust. And so they allowed them to fly with the with the eight days or bust patch, but they had to sew a little bit of cloth over the Conestoga wagon so that it would cover up that inscription. And they can only reveal the inscription once they landed eight days later. Um, and that was the first uh, mission-specific space patch and, and gave birth to the tradition. Um, the Soviets, uh, on their part, uh, actually, um, there was a cosmonaut that flew with a, a patch before um, uh, Gordon Cooper launched, um, and that was uh, Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. She did not design that patch. It wasn't on the outside of her spacesuit. It was actually on an inner pressure layer, and it came with the suit, the the, the um company that had put together the the spacesuit also created this patch it had a dove flying into sunlight but and then um the soviets introduced a a number of generic patches that represented more the rocket in the program that the cosmonauts wore on the outside of their suits um and then uh it wasn't until the apollo soyuz test project the joint u.s and russian mission that uh, Russians started wearing mission-specific uh, space patches on the outside of their suits. The initial iteration of the patches, the Gemini 5 patches, was that just for the astronauts, or were they passed out to, to folks that worked on the mission? Because I know, you know, now these patches get handed out to, you know, everybody on the mission, fans of, of NASA, fans of the mission themselves. Originally, were these patches just for the astronauts, or, or were they distributed within NASA? Uh, the patches, the Gemini patches that the Gemini Five crew wore, were actually hand sewn um, and were unique. So each one was a little bit different. Um, they did create a, a small handful that fl flew on the mission um, to give out to, to VIPs, not anywhere near the thousands that are flown today, or that you would go to the gift shop. Um, but soon after the mission. As these as patches be, um, entered the public eye that this was going to be popular, there were souvenir versions created, um, and so companies that were already creating uh, the NASA patch and other patches went ahead and created uh, replicas of the Gemini patch, um, and and Gemini six, seven, eight, and so forth had their own mission patches, and those were duplicated, and eventually by the end of the Gemini program, uh, there were the patches were being machine made um, and that therefore the crew wore the same version as the, uh, as you could buy in, you know, as a souvenir. You mentioned with the Gemini patch that, that it was kind of a way for, you know, those astronauts to personalize their mission. So they designed the patch after Gemini five. Was that the case? Did the crew continue that tradition of designing the patches themselves? Uh, during the Gemini and Apollo years? Yes. The, for the most part, most of the crews took it on themselves to at least come up with a basic design. And then they worked with an artist, um, either at one of the contractors or at NASA, to uh, perfect and make it into a, a usable patch. Um, 
the that's that's sort of is how it is still today. Some crews will have an artist on the crew, or maybe their daughter or son is an artist of one of the crew members, and so they'll go ahead and uh, and create the final artwork themselves, and then get NASA approval for it. Some crews will work will come up with a basic idea and then turn to an artist, whether one of NASA's in-house artists here at the Johnson Space Center or um, an artist that they know. Uh, and and then there's also a group of artists that have become known as patch artists, and so they, they know to reach out to them if they need help. And then um, some crews just don't take it that much of an interest and turn completely over to another artist, or an artist may come to them and say, I have this great idea for your patch, and because they um, and, and they'll look at it and say, oh, well, I like that. And then there's been a couple of cases where patches have been designed, not so much in the U.S., but in in Russia where and ESA where they've been designed by uh, by contests for students and so students have des- come up with the idea for the patch that the astronauts eventually wore. Is it always is there always something specific to the mission like that Gemini five patch? You know, was a symbol of the long duration aspect of the mission. Is there always some sort of mission artifact within the patch? Um, sometimes it's not always, uh, especially during the shuttle years, after 30 years of flying the space shuttle, 135 missions, there are only so many ways you could show the space shuttle. Um, some are more memorable than others. Um, you know, when, when they went to repair the Hubble space telescope for the first time, they incorporated optic, uh, optics into the design. Um, so you, when the last time they went to, uh, to service the Hubble space telescope, and upgrade it um, in 2009. It was more of a what it's going to reveal the galaxies and 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 views of, of space that never seen before. Um, there, uh, a, a lot of them did try to incorporate at least touches that that showed either something about the crew, about the mission, about the destination, about going to either the um, you know going to the International Space Station or going to Mir during the shuttle years. Um, and uh, some of them were inspired by other events. The Gemini 12 patch was black and orange because they were initially going to launch near Halloween. Um, and then they launched after that, and they launched in December. Um, but uh, it, it, it was, in the at least in the early years, and then throughout peppered throughout the, the rest of space history, um, a lot of the patches reflect the personalities of the crew themselves. And it's such a long-standing tradition, Robert. I mean, from Gemini 5 to even this Crew 6 mission, you know, there's always a big reveal as to what the design is, and, and the astronauts are always asked about it at, at every press conference before launch. I mean, what do you attribute the longevity of of this pre-launch ritual for, for human spaceflight? I think I think the, the mission patch legacy is that um, it is something that the crew can do as a, as a team building activity uh, if they want to work on it together. It's also showing that there is an artistic side to spaceflight. Um, it's something that the public resonates with and it is, and it allows the missions not to just run one into another where you don't know the difference between any of them. If you, if you know anything about any of the shuttle missions, you might recognize one of their, sh- one of their mission patches. And so I think that's what helps mm-hmm. distinguish it. It's also, you see this in other parts of culture too. You know, every sports team has their mascot or logo. 
Um, every company has a logo, a, a trademark. Um, and so patches are a little more co- uh, complex than that, but it's the same idea that you're, you're giving a brand to what you're doing. And given that missions may only last, or, you know, er, early on, it may have lasted only a few days today, they last six months or more on the space station that it, it gives an identity to that, to that one outing, that one expedition. Mm-hmm. And there's avid collectors too, of the general public of, of these patches. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the people that, that collect these patches? Yeah, there are, there are, there are definitely enthusiastic patch collectors, mission space mission patch collectors to start with. It's a really easy way to enter the hobby. Um, you can buy a replica of a, any of the space U S space patches, uh, for $5 or less, maybe a little bit more in the gift shops around $7, but you can find them for less on eBay. And it's, so it's not a very expensive hobby to enter. Of course, then when you start talking about, you know, that there are more than, you know, 200 patches to collect of just the missions themselves times, you know, that $5, yes, it over, it can become expensive if you try to do it all at once. Um, but it's something you can build up to. Um, and then once you've started that, once you've gone down that road of, collecting just the commercial souvenirs, then you, then as collecting does, um, you can get uh, more specific and more, and and try to find harder uh, to find examples. For example, even though they're now machine created, the patches that the astronauts wore were sometimes different than the patches that the crew, that the public could buy given different thread choices or were, um, were made by a different company um, and so trying to find those, it's harder, harder to find, or you may find that, um, you're, you know, there are different types of patches. There are embroidered patches. And then there are during the, uh, during the Apollo program, beta cloth patches after the Apollo one fire, uh, the, uh, NASA decided that they weren't going to bring a lot of, um, flammable materials inside the capsule. And even though some embroidered patches flew, the astronauts didn't wear uh, embroidered patches. They wore silkscreen patches on what was called beta cloth, which is a, um, a silica-based cloth, uh, basically glass cloth. And so uh, you can, uh, the company that made those for NASA, the company that silkscreened them, produced extras and extra runs. And today you can find those in there. And that's a different type of collectible in the patch field. Um, you might try to find flown patches and that becomes another, uh, another challenge in the NASA flies hundreds to thousands of additional patches on their flights to give out to employees who worked on the program, who worked on that additional, on that specific mission. Um, and then over time, those gets handed down and enter the secondary market. And so, um, you might try to put a full collection of flown patches together. That was Robert Perlman, a space historian and founder and editor of CollectSpace.com. Did you know Are We There Yet has its own mission patch? Well, I'll share the story of that in this episode's show notes. Visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet for more. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We got more space news online at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? This is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.